Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. This is Tracy Morgan, your host, as always. And today we'll be speaking um, with Dr. Sandra Buchler, who is a training and supervising analyst at the William Allenson White Institute here in New York City. She's um, also a supervisor at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital's internship and postdoc programs and supervises as well at um, ICP, Institute for Contemporary Psychotherapy, also in New York City. Um, today we'll be speaking with her um, about her book, Still Practicing, The Heartaches and Joys of a Clinical Career, which is published by Rutledge. And um, this book looks at some sources of shame, sorrow, and resilience at various stages of a clinical career. Indeed, it is a book that has a developmental sort of arc um, to it, looking at um, ways in which uh, our training impacts our sense of ourselves as clinicians throughout the course of our career, how losses uh, impact our view of ourselves as clinicians. It's a really an apt book for any clinician to read who's been at it for a while, who might have a question about, God, I don't feel so good about myself and my work all the time, <laughs> like I used to when I had early therapeutic zeal. Um, it's a book that looks at the harder emotions that uh, can face the uh, the analyst um, uh, who has chosen this path um, as a as a way of life and uh, as a career. Um, so, without further ado, um, we're going to bring Dr. Dr. on. I could carry on about all she's published. Actually, she's quite prolific. Um, there's a couple other books, "Making a Difference in Patients' Lives." Um, which is uh, Rutledge, 2008. Another book is uh, Clinical Values, Emotions that Guide Psychoanalytic Treatment, Analytic Press, 2004. Um, she's a dynamite speaker. I've seen her um, speak at conferences and uh, at a, se- a week-long seminar that White does. Um, and uh, so we're looking forward to speaking with her today. Hi, and welcome. Uh, Dr. Buchler is here with us today. This is Tracy Morgan, your host at New Books in Psychoanalysis. We'd like to welcome you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, listen, we're here to talk to you today about your most recent publication, Still Practicing, um, The Heartaches and Joys of a Clinical Career, a Rutledge publication. And um, I wanted to begin the interview by um, maybe giving the audience a little bit of a sense of the book that will lead to a question. Um, to my mind, uh, reading this book that I enjoyed immensely, um, I found it to be a book about shame and loss, in large mm-hmm. part, as part and parcel of a clinical career. And in the book, you examine shame and its sisters, so to speak, the shaming of the candidates, the shame of the analyst, the experience of loss in one's practice mm-hmm. as shameful. You focus on um, unacknowledged and uh, unmourned losses in the life of a mm-hmm. clinician that I think you suggest can wreak havoc on a person's career and, in fact, on the yeah. profession overall. Um, yeah. And as a profession that may be fledgling, at least in America, not in Argentina, according to the New York Times, um, perhaps we have Mm -hmm. to take the issues you're raising quite seriously. Mm -hmm. And uh, this book, I know, comes out of many years of your practicing Mm -hmm. as an analyst. And my sense was you're in touch with an as-yet unarticulated, except by you, kind of a Mm -hmm. zeitgeist. So 
Can you can you tell us what prompted you um, to to write this book? Sure. Um, first of all, I a thousand percent agree with what you just said. Oh, um, good. <laughs> I, I think it's true, and and a shame and sorrow are the two. I think of them as the two protagonists of the book, mm-hmm. um, and their uh, and their experience at all different phases of a career, going from training to early career experiences to middle career, later career, and then end career. And that's what I'm trying to do is look at shame and sorrow at each phase Mm -hmm. of a career and how the experiences of one phase can affect all the later phases. And then I do a little bit of trying to think about the field as a whole Mm -hmm. and how shame and sorrow in individual practitioners uh, shows itself in various behaviors uh, in our politics and in our group uh, situations in our institutes, and uh, how that might be affecting the the, the future of the of the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, why I wrote the book, I think there are always many many reasons uh, why a person writes. Uh, one reason I write is that it helps me know what I think. Yeah, and all my life, really, I've written. Uh, partly for that reason, mm-hmm. that I think more clearly when I'm writing something. And uh, so it helps me uh, create a point of view. So that's one reason. Um, but another reason is I, I had specific, particularly supervisees in mind when I wrote this. And in a way, I was writing to them, mm-hmm. uh, trying to say something to them in a way that maybe I haven't been able to say so clearly uh one-to-one, which is that some of the pain that they go through is not just specific to them and not just about them, but really about the situation of being a clinician. Right. I found that that was so powerful. I'm uh, completing my training, and um, I've been at it for 10 or 11 years now, and I've had a practice for, you know, uh, longer than that, actually. Mm-hmm. And I, the, the book spoke to me in volumes, the accumulated um, experiences of shame. Mm-hmm. It, it's, you know, this private experience of why did this patient leave or, yeah. you know, did I say the wrong thing? And yeah. I really loved the book because it it, it – lifts shame. At the end of the book, yeah. I felt a little better about myself, you know? <laughs> well, the, that's great. <laughs> I have to say, that was the experience. But I was also thinking um, that I don't, I don't see the word shame in psychoanalytic literature that mm-hmm. much. Now, mm-hmm. that, that could be where I'm training and how mm-hmm. I'm trained. But um, I was thinking, what, uh, you know, shame's such an early feeling, right? It seems to me it's the mm-hmm. moment of, you know, the practicing phase, right? When the Mm-hmm. You know, the infant's putting it all out there, and then they mm-hmm. learn about life's limits. And um, I think that in training, to sort of follow your developmental arc that you lay out mm-hmm. in the book, we really have sort of, you know, the candidate is initially starts out as, you know, le petit roi, you know, we're the <laughs> little kings in this yeah. our world. And then then something you're, something happens. I mean, I, I was reminded of being shamed in the class about how yeah. I dress. And yeah. In, in a field, like in front of the class, and everyone, mm-hmm. you know, no one could say anything. And I thought, oh, yeah. this, what has this done to us? What has this done to us yeah. all? But yeah. I wonder, how do you think, um, in sort of real time, in like our real, real practice, how might mm-hmm. institutes recognize and work with the potential for narcissistic injuries of the yeah. candidates? Well, that's a great question. That is, 
probably the question for me that I struggled with in this book. Uh, let me give you just a, a moment of background. In in 2009, I edited of a, a a, an issue of contemporary psychoanalysis on what was called the Ideal Institute and the Ideal Training. Mm-hmm. And I had 17 analysts from different countries and at different points in their career um, try to talk about analytic training and how it could be better, mm-hmm. their experience of it. And I was very much changed by the experience of editing this because I really could see how some of the problems, some of the shaming, it isn't about a particular analyst, it isn't about New York analysts, it isn't about American analysts. It's so similar. The stories are so parallel all over the world. Mm -hmm. So that I read, for instance, about the Israeli and the German analytic institutes and what uh, some uh, research on what these people went through in their training and it could, I could have been reading it from any institute I've ever been involved with myself. So mm-hmm. it's really, so some of the shaming, although the content may be different, the experience is very often not so different, mm-hmm. no matter where you are. Um, what well, One thing that, one suggestion I have about it is that um, I think we could do something about shame about shame. Mm. In other words, I think the feeling of inadequacy when you start in a profession, and particularly a profession that's as complex as ours, where the the methods of work are so hard to really define, where the problems are so vast, they're as vast as human life is, obviously people are going to feel a sense of inadequacy and insufficiency, which is what shame is. Mm-hmm. Uh there's no way around that, but they don't have to feel shame about having shame. Mm-hmm. They, I think that we're supposed to be, from our first day in training, sort of comfortable being self-revealing. Mm. It's it's a negative thing if you have any problem with being self-revealing. You're supposed to just sort of toss that off, you know? <laughs> and And it's not always possible when you know that the people uh, who are... Uh, Doing who are teaching your classes are evaluating you. Mm-hmm. You're being judged. It's not a, um, a fantasy that you're being judged. It's a reality. <laughs> right. And you're being judged doing something that you don't know how to do yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's nebulous as to exactly what you're supposed to be learning. Well, I, it was funny because when I, I had the interaction in the classroom with one instructor about how I dress, and I really love fashion mm-hmm. a lot. So mm-hmm. I was like, I thought, wow. I said, now, how I handle my aggression in this moment, yeah. you know, says says yeah. everything about me. Yeah. You know, but I also, yeah. I mean, I, I also had the sense that the instructor uh, had, had an eye on that at the same mm-hmm. time. You know, it was very, mm-hmm. it was a mixed bag, mm-hmm. but it's, it's very, it's, it's very rough. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know, you're you're thinking on so many levels. You you're trying to say whatever your point of view is in class, but you know you're being evaluated. And then there are other candidates who are also listening, and there are competitive issues often. And it's a very complicated social situation. But I think, as you say, there isn't a lot of um, notice given to shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew Morrison was one of the people who did. Uh, write a lot 
uh, Morrison and, and Lansky, mm-hmm. and uh, the, uh, that their books, their edited books, I think are very, very fine works, uh, and they do talk about the role of shame, and they talk a lot about the history of uh, neglect of the issue of shame in Mm -hmm. psychoanalysis, that in the early days, at least, Freud was more interested in guilt on the whole than shame, and so shame took a a kind of backseat. Right, 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 and shame shame is before guilt. Um, shame is so early, you know, in, in life, the first experiences um, with shame. I was, I, you know, my, my training is not in a two-person model. So mm-hmm. I'm at the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies. And I mm-hmm. have often thought about my colleagues and friends who are um, trained in a two-person model and about mm-hmm. the role of shame. Um, my, I had a supervisor for a long time, Louis Ormont, and he mm-hmm. would always say, and I think he was probably influenced by Racker when he said this, he used to tell the supervisees in group, 95% of the time it's about them, and the other 5% of the time it's about them too. And what that always, <laughs> meaning the patient, and what that mm-hmm. would do to me, it, was, it, would, it would reduce my uh, shame, my anxiety, mm-hmm. and my inability to work with whatever the feeling was I was having. My mm-hmm. two-person uh, trained friends are like having to investigate themselves in the moment. Mm-hmm. They're not thinking like, is this a complementary? Is this con- concordant? Mm-hmm. Is this um, an objective counter-transference reaction? Instead, they're they're looking into themselves. And I yeah. I think about that um, yeah as as really so strenuous. And I'm not sure. I don't. I'm not yeah. sure that it's it's clinically uh, necessarily helpful. But yeah. it, but it's it strikes me that it can lead leave a person particularly a candidate, um, you know, new in the field, uh, depleted. So I don't know. I found myself thinking about the strain of the, of the two-person model um, as maybe a lending or, you know, create, mm-hmm. being, making people culpable to burnout. And I wanted to find out, what, what do you think about this idea, the investigation of the analyst self uh, in the counter-transference? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, it's true that the more we see ourselves as playing a major role in in the in how the treatment goes mm. uh the more we may be likely to judge ourselves as uh insufficient or uh inadequate in some way and so it could be that we're we may be more subject to shame mm-hmm. we also could be looking at the other side we could see ourselves as having uh, played a positive role. Right. And we could see the, uh, let's see if we see ourselves as having more influence because we're looking at a two-person model. Mm-hmm. We could see that could be very positive. We could see ourselves as having you know, done a great job in mm-hmm. some way. Right. So it, it could go either way, I think. Depending, um, depending on the person's, and in this book you constantly say, depending on the character of, yeah. you know, of the, uh, you know, the analyst, depending yeah. on the character of the candidate, yeah. I mean, right. these things go, go any number of ways. Um, but it's, it is, I find, I find it tricky. I often will, you know, give like ad hoc supervision to a friend and I'm like, well, why mm-hmm. does the patient want you to feel like a worthless, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, that, that's so freeing. I was like, or why mm-hmm. does the patient, you know, want you yeah. to kill them? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think that the, the downside of that, and here I'll talk as an interpersonalist, sure. is that uh, it, it might tend to blame the patient in some way and might not um, 
allow us to take responsibility mm-hmm. that, you know, it's not just that we have an impact because of what we say. Right. I really feel very strongly that we have an impact because of our focus in the session. Yeah. And I think that's inevitable, no matter what your um, uh, orientation is, mm-hmm. because what you pick up on, what you focus on, what you don't pick up on, what you remember from one session to another, it's going to be shaped by what you think is important in life and what your values are. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I don't think there's a way around that. So mm-hmm. I think in that sense, we have to take responsibility for that we're having an impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who we are as human beings right. is having an impact. But it's it's so interesting because it does dovetail back into contending with um, sort of narcissistic, you yeah. know, injury and mortification. It's really yeah. it, it's a yeah. It takes a lot of a lot of fortitude, even in the one person model. I'm not saying that yeah. you know. I would yeah. say that we're <laughs> that yeah. we get around these that we get around these feelings. We work with these feelings perhaps differently. Um, we're navigating. I would say that there's always the navigating and negotiating of shame. I mean, mm-hmm. how I we do it, you know, yeah. in any yeah. number of ways. Um, yeah. But uh, but but that we're doing it um, is and that we're all attempting to do that is is a part of a part of our job um, and our staying afloat. I think um, in our work, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you more about um, the about training. Um, mm-hmm. I've, uh, I'm involved with the uh, Unbehagen, which is a group that David Lichtenstein just wrote about in the mm-hmm. Division Review and like the front mm-hmm. editorial page. And it's mm-hmm. mostly a group of candidates. And um, I think we've thought about possibly inviting you to come in to address us. So oh. We'll see what happens here. But I um, <laughs> hope I haven't spoken out of turn. I think mm-hmm. we're beginning with a bunch of, uh, mm-hmm. a, a bunch of uh, Lacanians are coming from mm-hmm. France. But it's really mm-hmm. a lot of candidates and institute graduates who, um, given the term Unbehagen, the discontented, have the mm-hmm. feeling that something has gone awry somehow mm-hmm. in their training. And I actually, I, mean, I like, overall, I like my training pretty much, but I was, I love mm-hmm. the group, this group of people. So I'm there and I'm mm-hmm. listening and I'm thinking about what's, what's gone wrong. And, um, mm-hmm. and I wanted to ask you, can you talk to us about what you see as the key problems, uh, in, in training that sort of mm-hmm. set, set clinicians up to be less, um, sure on their feet or, or resilient? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I think, again, that's one of the key questions for me in general and in this book in particular. Um, What goes awry? I mean, I'm saying that one thing is I think there's a sort of self-perpetuating problem here that those, those of us who went through training had some shaming experiences. And I think, uh, without necessarily meaning to without any conscious intent mm-hmm. we may uh, perpetrate those we may do to candidates what what happened to us and um, I, I do want to say I mean I feel also very very positive about my training I, I don't think I had bad training mm-hmm. I think my training was very good I always say to candidates the aim in training has to become to be as good a clinical instrument as you can become. Mm-hmm. And I believe that my training did help me become a better clinical instrument. Mm-hmm. I, I really feel that way about it. But I think that some of the attitudes that we have uh, as faculty now, I'll put that hat on, mm-hmm. are problematic. For instance, we're looking for in the candidate the defenses 
when right. you're looking for the defenses, you're always second guessing someone. Mm-hmm. Whether you're looking, whether we're talking about uh, uh, training or even in doing treatment, when you're when you're doing the analysis of defense, in effect, you're looking at what is it that this person doesn't see about themselves, mm-hmm. and uh, and how can I help them see it, confront them with it, or however you want to say that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the attitude is often to see, okay, what is there about this candidate that he or she doesn't know about themselves? What they maybe don't know the meaning of how they're dressing. Mm-hmm. Using mm-hmm. your example, sure. or or they don't know the meaning of that they're uh, using more words than they need to, that they're obsessional in some way, or right. they, you know, they don't know the meaning of mm-hmm. this behavior. And we, it's our job to to confront them with it, to make them see it. Right now, I think some of that is probably necessary. That's why I'm saying that shame itself may not be avoidable. Mm-hmm. It's the shame about shame. I mean, in other words, we do need in training, I think, to know some more about our blind spots, our defenses, the things that are hard for us to work with. We, mm-hmm. we have to, we're, we're responsible for our impact on uh, many, many patients. So I think we do need to know about those things. But we need, I think a faculty can realize this is very difficult for candidates and be more sensitive to how shaming the training can be. Mm-hmm. You know, just to give you an example, in supervision as opposed to treatment, you know, some people have said that supervision is really no different from treatment because supervision is dealing with the candidate's countertransferences, which are defenses. Mm-hmm. So supervision is analyzing defenses and treatment is analyzing defenses. So what's the difference? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't agree with that, first of all, because in supervision, you usually don't go into the candidate's early life. Mm -hmm. So supervision, I think, can be more shaming Mm -hmm. because you're pointing out the the candidate's, let's say, obsessional defenses, but you aren't really empathically understanding with the candidate why they needed to develop those defenses. Mm -hmm. So you're not helping the candidate as much have empathy for themselves. Right. Whereas in treatment, it's a different relationship. You do know the history. You together understand why the person needed to develop whatever defenses they have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now I'm, I'm saying I don't think that can change or should change. I don't think that in supervision people should tell their whole life story necessarily. Mm-hmm. But what I do think is we really have to be aware of how shaming supervision can be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we also have to take very seriously the effect, the long-term effect of having the attitude that if a, a candidate loses patience, it's their fault, mm-hmm. which I'm not saying is always what the attitude taken, but I think too often it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's particularly hard because I've trained a lot of people who come from other countries and they come to the United States, for instance, from Japan. I've done a lot of work in Japan and with Japanese candidates and they come here and they need to have a patient. They need to have a certain number of hours that the patient stays. And some of the patients have come only, let's say, if they're the partner of somebody who has a job 
here for a limited amount of time. Let's say they've come for a year. They're not going to stay in treatment longer than that. Right. It's very hard for the candidate, and the candidate often feels like a failure because they can't keep the patient longer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is a built-in shaming Mm-hmm. problematic thing in, in training. Well, you know, you, it's funny. You begin the book, I think, in probably the first or second page, talking about like being at an imaginary cocktail party yeah. and the conversation goes to like, you know, people talking about how's your practice going yeah. and yeah. It's kind of like how did you do on that test, you know? Exactly. <laughs> it's really... Um, how are you doing on that test? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, there is, you know, I think the shame, I mean, the deepest source, I would say, of the shame, from my point of view, is the feeling of inadequacy that people are asking us how to live their lives. Mm -hmm. And we really don't have answers like that. Right. Now, I always say to people, um, I'm not an expert in whether someone should live in Westchester, have a dog, and, you know, (laughs) whatever. Go, You know, I'm not an expert in that. The only thing I really know is I know the pattern. I know patterns. And I think another problem in training is we don't clearly enough teach people the kind of stuff we could teach them that could be, maybe it's not so sexy, you know, it's, but it's kind of bread and butter stuff, like what the defenses look like. Right. You know, what, what is obsessional? What What is schizoid? You know, the kind of old-fashioned stuff that has gone a little bit out of favor, but would allow someone starting a practice to say, okay, there are skills. I'm, I'm, when someone comes and pays my fee, they're getting something. Right. Like a pediatrician knows what chickenpox looks like, and they mm-hmm. get money for that. Mm-hmm. And that's good. That's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we need to have sort of skills that we know we have so we don't feel so insufficient. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you, you have a, um, uh, I think I have a quote here from you where you're writing about sort of the clinician's, I guess, despair um, mm-hmm. in response to like a loss of, I yeah. guess, a, a loss of certainty. And you suggest that given all the different divisions in the, in, within yeah. psychoanalysis, all the different schools, um, yeah. you know, and the love affair um, that's yeah. being had in certain sectors yeah. with postmodernism. Yeah. You know, and and you suggest that, that maybe we've outgrown, this is your quote, yeah. we've outgrown our field's early reliance on identifiable yeah. techniques. Um, I guess I, I wanted to, I'm, I'm just, I'm getting ready, I'm going to be interviewing in a few months, um, What's mm-hmm. his name? Uh, John, um, oh goodness, his book Conundrums, John Mills. And mm-hmm. he has a real critique of the use of postmodernism. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask, what, what do you make of the use of, of postmodernism by psychoanalysts? I mean, what, yeah. what, do you, what do you have to say about that? Well, uh, well, I have mixed feelings. I think it's done some good things for our field in the sense that basically to confront us with how little we know in a sense, you know, the logical positivism that used to be pretty rampant, I think is, is no longer so rampant, uh, though it still exists. But, uh, so I think that's the positive side. The negative side is I think it's made us much less certain. Mm -hmm. It's, it's made us feel basically like we don't know what we're doing mm-hmm. because if everyone's doing it in different ways and you know they're all trying and they're all pretty bright people and they're all trained right there is no right way obviously right um and i think i think we have to live with that 
-hmm. in a way, it makes treatment a microcosm of the rest of life. It's part of what, because uncertainty is part of being human. Right. And so, of course, treatment also has its uncertainties. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to be a good microcosm, it would have to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think on the whole, it has played a good role, but I think it's got to be balanced or tempered with giving people basic skills Mm -hmm. so that they have more of a sense that they do know something about what they're doing, that they know, you know, something about how to create connections between a person's history and their current life and what's going on in the treatment, the transference and countertransference. If they can't make those basic connections, they feel very lost, and I don't think there's anything good about feeling lost. Well, they, they probably also feel shame. Yeah, that's uh, right. To have spent all those years training and then yeah. uh, being supervised and analyzed yeah. and to yeah. um, not feel like you have a basic, I think, a, a basic enough skill set um, yeah. can fill one with shame. And then yeah. the other thing I was thinking about is the, the impact of shame on the field at large that, that you address. And I was thinking mm-hmm. that shame perhaps... Um, begets uh, rage, ultimately. Yes. In, in, in many people. I think what shame begets... You know, I, I, before I was trained as an analyst, I was an emotion theorist, and I worked with Cal Izzard, and we had a National Science Foundation grant. Oh, you're and kidding. We, yeah, because you quote yeah. him a lot. I was yeah. wondering your Yeah, we worked together. We did a grant together, and we looked at the emotions in the first two years of life mm-hmm. and what, a, what evokes the first expression of anger, fear, shame distress, you know, all kinds of emotions. So that's where I come from. Mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of my stuff has a lot of that language in it. But um, so I, I mean, I don't think that it's possible for shame not to be part of the experience. Mm -hmm. I think the question is, how, how can we balance it with feelings of curiosity, with feelings of competence, with feelings of resilience, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, with other uh, strengthening feelings. Right, right. It is a, to to quote the Mills Mills text, it is a conundrum um, to to work on that. And I think that that part of what you're attempting to do is to just put it on the table, like shame is ineluctable now. Once we know that as part of the training, how do, how do we work? How do we reduce the severity of the shame? Because shame, of yeah. course, makes people run and freeze. That's often, right. Often enough. Um, but I was thinking about you. I think you make an interesting argument about uh, the impact of ongoing shame, and then let's look at the other sort mm-hmm. of main, you know one of the other main ideas, which is you know loss. Um, yeah. Ongoing, so you're, you have a, a person who may have been shamed and feel ashamed, and then mm-hmm. they're experiencing losses, which, of course, you just referenced about the Japanese candidate, you know, yeah. that you lose, you lose people and yeah. there's more shame. Yeah. Um, and you write, I want to quote you, anger can be a last-ditch defense against dissolution. And mm-hmm. then you ask, do we fight so hard for or against mm-hmm. classical approaches in part to avoid experiencing potentially debilitating sorrows? Mm-hmm. Could you discuss with us, could you elaborate on this? Sure. Uh, In other words, uh, uh, Sullivan, for instance, one of the founders of our institute, uh, saw anger as 
basically a defense against anxiety. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anger as a kind of pattern of behavior that infants learn early makes you feel more cohesive than anxiety does. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of from it from very early on, maybe four or five months, it's, 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 it's more cohesion making to be angry than to be anxious or, or despairing. Mm -hmm. So we all learn in the culture, we all learn uh, something about using anger that way. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the field, it seems to me possible that we, have had you know the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune many many times we've had many uh shaming and sorrowful we've lost every patient we've ever seen by definition and so my thought is that maybe we develop uh sort of angry way some of us develop uh, a kind of shell of anger mm-hmm. uh partly to bear all of this these feelings and then we take some of it out on each other in some way we've we've in other words it's easier to fight for a certain orientation than it is to bear all of the shame and sorrow Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh it's easier to see the sometimes it's easier to see the field as dying than it is to face one's own limitations and the pain of doing the work over yeah. a career. Well, you have, you have so, I, I pulled out some beautiful um, sentences that really struck me about, about loss. And some were so basic and simple. And when I discussed them with uh, friends, with my research mm-hmm. advisor, with a supervisor, they were like, oh, yeah. You know, like, it's sort of a, yeah. you know, it was, it was like, a, like an unthought known that you just, yeah. you know, you, you put out there. And mm-hmm. one of them is, you, you write, in clinical practice, loss is so pervasive that it can be hard to notice. Mm-hmm. And then you say uh, later, a few pages later, I believe, I don't know anyone who knew my patients, so I can't find yeah. out about them or share a memory with someone yeah. who knew them. And then That's finally right. you say, you write, there are no rituals for mourning a terminated treatment. There is no mm-hmm. traditional pattern of bearing the loss. On the contrary, the analytic culture may foster and reinforce an analyst's denial of the depth of his or her feelings yeah. about a patient. And then you ask this question, which I'd like to ask you, does... Does our training prepare us to bear a lifetime of endings? No, I don't think it does. I, I, individual supervisors may take that up, but I don't think on the whole. We, we, uh, I'll broaden that for a moment and then come back to what you mm-hmm. said. We don't really prepare people for the life, I think, of being an analyst. Think, in other words, absolutely. we don't prepare them for aging, what it's like to age. I think, and I don't think the training can prepare us to, in every way. I mean, we have to learn along the way too. But uh, there are aspects of the work, like the loss of every single patient in one way or another, and the fact that there's no one we can talk to really about the patient who knows the patient, that is, uh, these things are regularly occurring. We can predict that everybody we train is going to go through that. Mm-hmm. And yet we don't talk about these things. Um, there's a little book by Nina Coltart, I don't know if you know it, called How to Survive as a Psychotherapist. No, but I'll, I'll buy it. Okay. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's very simple. And many of her, these yeah. things, yeah, I do too. Many of these things are, they, they sound simple, maybe even simplistic, but they're truths. 
You know, and she writes about the basics, about what it's like to live the life where you have to change every 45 minutes or 50 minutes from dealing with one human being and dealing with the emotions that get evoked for you. And then a buzzer sounds and you're supposed to be able to move to the next one. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. just what that takes out of us. Mm -hmm. I think people not only in training don't talk about, but I don't know where they do talk about those things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, There are no rituals for mourning. Well, I learned about that one time a patient of mine died and I went to the funeral. And it was a big decision for me because I don't usually do things like that. I don't don't go to people's graduations or whatever. But I thought I wanted to go to this funeral. This this woman meant a lot to me and I wanted to be there. But when I got there, I realized something in a very physical, palpable way, which was that I couldn't talk to anybody. Yeah. It's it's a powerful example in the book. I w- it, it really yeah. made my my throat tight, and I was like, "Oh mm-hmm. my god!" I was like, "Absolutely, they're gone, and you're alone with their being gone." Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I mean, I think people there were probably guessing who I was <laughs> because they, you know, nobody else knew me by definition. You know, and not only in that very dramatic situation, but in every situation. Let's say a patient just terminates and is well and happy and the treatment went well. Not only can I never find out what happened to that person, but I can, can't can say casually to somebody, oh, you know, that reminds me of so-and-so. Well, I can't I can't say that. <laughs> and, they, and it would have no meaning for them That's either because right. they don't know so-and-so. That's right. <laughs> so it's a very strange kind of situ- a position that we're in. Yeah. You know, I, I found out through accident about what happened to a former patient of mine who I'd been, you know, worked with for many years. I found out she had a very, very serious car accident where she became uh, basically uh, unable to walk for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. And I'll never probably, I, I don't know where she is or how she's doing. Mm-hmm. And I'll never know that the... the the question will always be a question mark for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that's the position that we're in. We have a lot of, you know, lines and lines of question marks. Well, what is, I, I was thinking about what, what does a state of chronic and disavowed mourning look like in an analyst? Well, I think it can look, in, look so many ways. One of the ways I think is it can look like burnout. Mm-hmm. I, I do believe that some of the things we're talking about here can lead to burnout, and then it's very easy to blame you know, managed care, to blame the culture, and the culture isn't friendly to psychoanalysis, to, mm-hmm. to make all kinds of arguments which have truth to them. I'm not disagreeing with the problems, mm-hmm. but I think we sometimes don't understand or own maybe how much our individual suffering over the years has played a role in the burnout. And mm-hmm. burnout isn't always a, uh, doesn't always take the form of quitting the field. It can take the form of really not being excited by the work anymore. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an absence of a, of a kind of excitement and passion, mm-hmm. which I think we, most of us, maybe all of us, start out with passion. Right. So the zeal, the zeal at the beginning, I think also, you know, 
you know, as someone who's 15 years in, you know, with a private practice, I mean, the zeal I had the first five years has yeah. been tempered. Yeah. You know, really been tempered and I didn't expect it to be tempered. You know, I just thought I would always have that zeal. And I, in reading your book, I thought, you know, it's true. There's a lot, there's shame. There's a lot of loss there. I mean, there are people, there's a, there's a patient who was with me for like eight years. His, I have his phone number. Like it, I, you know, before before there was a cell phone, mm-hmm. practically, you know, mm-hmm. I had his number. I had it somehow mm-hmm. memorized. Sometimes I'll think of his number. I'm like, boy, I wish I could call him, yep. find out how he's doing. All yep. you know, these these many years yep. later, it's bizarre. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. There's no other relationship really that's like this. Yep. I mean, it's true. As I say in the book, it's true that uh, you know pediatricians lose their their patients in some ways and so the teachers lose their students but we are involved in people's lives in such an intimate way right. and we lose every single one of them and and they and the teacher can go to the wedding yeah the <laughs> teacher can go to the wedding the teacher can ask somebody oh, have you heard how so-and-so is right you know our confidentiality requirements which i absolutely believe in right. but they have an impact on us right Absolutely. I, I was thinking in your writing, which is very, um, it's, it's a, I was thinking about new forms of psychoanalytic writing because, you know, I mm-hmm. interview lots of analysts and I thought this was a, a unique form of analytic writing mm-hmm. in that it's a bit memoir and mm-hmm. it's um, really, you know, looking at the, the sort of macro, like taking a perspective on, on the field mm-hmm. and how, yeah. we, how we create um, or we train um, people mm-hmm. to become analysts. But and so I, I was enjoying that aspect. And then I had this thought. I said, I wonder if writing is also a way to stay in contact with the lost patients. Well, I think it is. I, when I write about somebody, they're certainly more present in my mind. I bring them up to the front of my mind. Mm-hmm. And so the people that I wrote about, not only patients, but also supervisees uh, in, in the book, were brought back to me in a certain way. But it does have limitations to it, you know. As I say, it's not the body of the person, and I think the body matters. Right. I'm not in the presence of that person. Right. They're they're as close as, as you can bring them without mm-hmm. them being there. In, in, That's right. In your descriptions of them, um, yeah. Because I have a sense of a lot of your your different um, cases through through mm-hmm. reading the book. Um, I also have a there's a. A chapter that was, um, I forget which chapter it was precisely, but there's a, I wrote, it's about the assault of the analyst, because you use that word, and you, you describe assaults on the clinician's uh, self-esteem, and yeah. you describe an analyst who goes through a day of such hell, <laughs> they, I mean, I, I actually, I read it out loud to some friends who aren't clinicians, and they were like, oh my God. And I was like, they're like, have you ever, I was like, have I had those days? I was like, oh yeah, I've, I've definitely had those days full of the, uh, Larry Epstein's bad analyst feeling all day long, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, but I, I was thinking about the use of the word assault. Yeah. I was like, you know, you're, you're clearly a writer. So you made a a decision to use the word assault. I was like, wow, that, that really brought it, brought it home. Um, how was the analyst? assaulted? Well, uh, in in so many different ways. I think that people often are saying in one way or another, you're no good to me, to the end. You're not helping me. You're not giving me what I came here for. It's assault to the self-worth of the analyst. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think we get those, 
not every day maybe, but many days. Um, and in that chapter, what I uh, one of the things I tried to to sort of make happen is that the analyst then that night is giving a paper. And so I'm trying to say that the assaults that he suffered over the day play a role in how he feels toward his discussions Mm -hmm. and how defensive he gets, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I think he's, he's been assaulted all day, and I think we're taught not to be defensive with patients. Right. So we can't defend ourselves. Right. And then that need to defend ourselves can can kind of well up in us. Mm-hmm. And I think then we can enact or act that out with colleagues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, obviously we're also assaulted transferentially. In other words, we we pay for the sins of the fathers, if you want to <laughs> look at it that way. Uh-huh. The sins of the fathers are visited on us, in a sense. That's right. Um, so... Uh, we can be assaulted for that kind of reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, I mean, I I think that sometimes the assault is is deliberate. There's there's real aggression in it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, You you also write about early career trauma, I think, like traumatic settings and um, that new clinicians, you know, are in the toughest settings often with the most... Difficult patients, and uh, and I was yeah. thinking about you know the I'm sure you know the article that Harold Searles, the dedicated yeah. physician, and oh yeah, yeah. And, and I just I was I went back to it. I was like, because mm-hmm. that article when I first started practicing, I used to sleep with that article and Larry mm-hmm. Epstein's bad analyst feeling <laughs> under my pillow. It was like you know because because they are so much in conversation with each other without mm-hmm. you know talking to each other. Yeah. I think Searles yeah. and, and Epstein. Um and yeah. in the dedicated physician he he says patients cause one to doubt one's capacity to love and to yeah. feel that one's devotion is meaningless or worse, <laughs> malevolent. <laughs> and uh so yeah. then I was thinking of I, I was thinking about you. Do you do you think our our institutes are um I don't know if it's working hard enough because God knows everyone's working real hard and the institutes aren't places where people are making money or, you know, getting rich no. or, you know, it's la- they are all labors of love, each and every one. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, love and aggression, I would say, putting them together. <laughs> they're a lot of work. Mm-hmm. But I wondered about, um, do, you ha- do you think that um, the institutes are, are really helping um, clinicians to deal with the, the not me, like dealing with, the, with their hating yeah. patients? being repulsed by a, I mean, like these, these yeah. things that you, know, you leave at the end of the day yeah. and you have those two, that third glass of wine yeah. because you're like, yeah. how could I hate yeah. so much? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think in the personal analysis, hopefully there is some help that the, that the person, that the candidate is given to deal with the not me. I mean, the problem I think sometimes is that because the candidate is being assessed and judged, Mm -hmm. that attitude can make the candidate feel kind of just like they're being told that they're not good because they have those feelings. Mm -hmm. In other words, that they're not, it's not as empathic a stance as we would hope for, I think. Right. So that uh, if the, if the candidate has revulsion toward the patient, instead of being helped to understand where that comes from, again, because in supervision, you usually don't have that background of why that candidate developed those feelings. It feels like, oh, that's a bad grade I'm getting. Right. That's a bad 
thing about me that's maybe that disqualifies me from being a real analyst. Yeah, or right, or the idea that um, I think that I've in in reading reading some um, clinicians writing about supervision, I've I've caught the attitude like, well, you should change almost like, well, the mm-hmm. the clinician should change how they feel, and mm-hmm. I'm like, well, actually. Isn't the feeling interesting to take note of? Yes. <laughs> I, mean, yes. I mean, that you have the feeling says something about the case, says something yes. about the analyst, says something about the couple. Yes. yes. Um, but but there, I've read the suggestion like, well, then you have to find a new feeling. And I'm yeah. like, find yeah. a new feeling. What could make yeah. you feel worse than having yeah. the wrong feeling? That's right. I think, uh, I mean, I've thought that uh, in training, the development that often and that it's good for this to happen, that countertransference becomes information. Right. Not self-castigation, not, you know, but information. Whatever you feel has to be information. It's information about you. It's information about the patient. It's information about what's going on between you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when it becomes information, I think then you can use it more. Right. Right. And it's not, uh, it's actually not uh, shameful that's right. <laughs> this is this is information be. that we should be yeah. curious about. That's right. You know, and uh, and then everyone can sort of look at it and, and get much more interested. Yeah. Um, but you know that early career stuff, of course, uh, as as I write in the book, it's it's very personally meaningful. I had a lot of very difficult experiences early in my career. Yeah. But I think it's early on people get the patience that other more senior people don't want to treat mm-hmm. and they feel they have to take them because they need a practice mm-hmm. and people are often put on the front lines in uh, clinics and hospitals that more senior people might not like to work in right uh, but the jobs and they can get jobs like that right and so at the very time that they have less of a, a track record of helping people, they're working with the most difficult people to work with. Right. I wonder if what keeps people going is the early few, in the early years of therapeutic zeal might <laughs> <laughs> might help people to to manage because it's tough. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think uh, some of the time, and this can lead to this is I'm going to tell the dark side of that in a way. Some of the time. People feel like, oh, this will pass. I'm, I'm going to feel better about my clinical strengths as I go on. And mm-hmm. people expect a kind of a, a, a progress, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, that feeling that may keep people going in the beginning may actually lead to more despair in the long run when it has in it expectations of something that doesn't happen. But I think the therapeutic zeal in the beginning is very strengthening yeah. often. It, it, it does help you. It does help. Beginning. I mean, my, my initial practice was a really a very disturbed uh, private yeah. practice of a lot, a lot of I had sex workers and, you know, very mm-hmm. disturbed. And I thought, oh, my God, yeah. I, needed, I needed assistance, you know, but, you know, but I had the zeal. And yeah. the, the zeal was very helpful to me um, yeah. to listen to to listen to things and experience feelings that were yeah. unfathomable. Um, yeah. but, but the idea that one progresses, that I would have different feelings when working yeah. with that population. Now, I, I don't know that I that I would, but yeah. I would know, I know that either. those are the feelings I would have. You know? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I don't. I I think that uh, I can say for myself when I worked early on in hospital settings that were just so painful to be in mm-hmm. uh, for me 
but I think I was able to bear it partly because I was young and had that kind of zeal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's really quite, it's very challenging. But I think your book brings us, um, I think you, you put certain things on the table that need to be put on the table and just sort of digested and and accepted as, you know, mm-hmm. this is this is the terrain. This yep. is the average and expectable yeah. in yep. the terrain. Um, and the challenge then is to develop resilience. Mm-hmm. To develop a capacity, to develop the strengths mm-hmm. that allow you to get up the next morning and try again. Well, I, you know, and I, and I really think it's a lot of people out of the White Institute and people mm-hmm. influence interpersonalists. Like I'm thinking mm-hmm. about, you know, my my friend Chris Bandini who wrote mm-hmm. the piece in Contemporary mm-hmm. Psychoanalysis about money. Mm-hmm. You know, that yeah. like I like how the interpersonalists really are like, okay, we're going to talk about that thing. Yeah. That's sort of nobody's going to talk about. Here yeah. it is. And uh, there's something very, uh, very refreshing and very grounding. Yeah. Uh, about I think it. I think so. Yeah. I think that it it is a good thing about our tradition that mm-hmm. we we expect ourselves to do that in a way. Yeah, that's right. It's car- carrying on, you know, from yeah. the from the forebears, you know, of yeah. Rome and, you know, the more yeah. people with with a politics um, in mind, you know, as well as a clinical perspective. It's it is really um Terrific. Um, so I was. Uh, <laughs> we're just about out of time. It's funny. I've had mm-hmm. had up on the screen the whole time the um, Elizabeth Bishop poem, oh, uh, One Art, that. which it's. I've had that on my refrigerator for about mm-hmm. eight years. I couldn't believe mm-hmm. I found it in your book. Uh, it, I love. I love that one it's, art. It's an ama- It's an amazing um, poem about about losing, and mm-hmm. uh, I think you um, say. I think you quote what the last stanza. I believe someplace in the book you say, even losing you, the joking yeah. voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have yeah. lied. It's evident. The art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, parenthetically, write it like a disaster. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I think we'll close with Elizabeth Bishop and uh, thanking you very much for, Thank um, you. for being with us and, uh, and talking with us today on New Books and Psychoanalysis. So everyone stay tuned. Um, And I think uh, the next uh, interview will be um, with uh, John Mills. Okay. Bye-bye. All for now. Thank you, Dr. Bouchard. Thank you. 